1 Thessalonians. We've been working our way through uh, this letter, this book written by the Apostle Paul, one of the earliest Christians, as he um, was in a place called Corinth, writing to uh, this uh, city in what we would think of as Greece, but then was part of the Roman Empire, to a little group of Christians who had come to faith through him, uh, a church that he'd planted, uh, that he'd begun, and uh, that he had uh, sweated over in the months and years since he had last seen them uh, because he had had to leave them uh, in some sort of precipitative uh, circumstances. We'll come back to that in a moment. And as we've been reading through this book, probably not a letter written to be read like this, but a a letter written to be read like this, read out loud to the church. Uh, We've been hearing him... uh, if you like, demonstrate before them a faith that is both relevant uh, to everyday life and a faith that really makes a difference to everyday life. We started off by looking at 1 Thessalonians 1, and we looked at what it is to have a life that is shaped by gratitude, that recognizes that life itself is a gift, that everything we have and enjoy is a gift, and that that uh, life of gratitude is what changes our outlook and what makes our faith relevant and life-changing. And then last week, Ben, uh, who was visiting us and preaching uh, rather beautifully, if you missed it, please do go back and uh, have a listen on the podcast. Ben was helping us to think about the way that we speak. He was talking about the power of words and helping us to think about uh, the way in which Paul spoke um, about how his aim wasn't so much to please other people, but to please God and the way those words had power. And today I want to think um, not about really, uh, not in detail at least, about the whole of the passage uh, that Kristen read read to us, but look at those first few verses, 17 to 20, and in particular, pick up on one little phrase uh, there at the end of verse 20. Our glory and joy. You are, he says, our glory and our joy. There are moments, aren't there, where you feel like you have been given a little window into somebody's soul. It might be uh, an unguarded remark by a work colleague, where usually you're uh, you're pretty much at arm's length, and something happens, they do something, they say something, something sort of spills out of them, and you just get this little window. It's like the curtains have twitched, and you feel like you've seen something of what actually goes on inside them. Or it might be a a surprising and rather passionate decision, decisive decision, by a spouse or a member of your family, where you see an aspect of them or something going on inside them that you'd maybe only dimly glimpsed before, and you have that sense of a window, as I say, into their soul. Sometimes, actually, it can happen simply when you're reading. If you're reading a really good autobiography, or biography for that matter, that little passage that just makes you sort of think, that's it. That's what makes them who they are. It feels like, doesn't it, that you've been ushered into the the engine room. This is what drives them. This is what pushes them forwards. I slightly changed the metaphor. This is what makes them tick. Uh, And in other ways, maybe that you've been ushered into the wheelhouse. This is what gives them direction. This is what guides them. That little window into somebody's soul. This is what drives them forward. This is what gives them direction in life. And of course, it's not just other people who have that inner life going on. That sense of, this is what drives them forward, this is what gives them direction. You and I are exactly the same. There will be those unguarded moments in our lives 
those surprising comments, those passionate decisions that give other people cause to think, ah, that's what drives you. That's what's most important to you. That's what gives you purpose, direction, side. Sometimes that's terribly flattering. Sometimes it's really not flattering at all. And somebody sees something in us, maybe we wouldn't even see ourselves, a, a part of us that is driven by simply success, a part of us that is guided by the opinions of others, whatever it is. We're all driven. We all have those drivers in us that keep us getting up in the morning and walking forwards. We all have that sense of a, what gives us a, a direction in life. I want to suggest that these two little words in Paul's letter, glory and joy, are precisely those sorts of words. That when he says of these Christians in Thessalonica, you are my glory and my joy, he's opening the curtains a little bit to let you in, to let you see in a, through a window into his very soul. He's saying something along these lines. You, the people of God that I have helped bring to faith and nurture in the faith, you and people like you are what drive me forward day by day. My... Um, my very joy, and what give me a purpose and direction for the whole of life, my glory. See, glory is a sense of the way in which you are, or when we talk about God's glory, God is revered or judged or looked at from the outside in. So somebody's glory is the way that other people look up to them, other people see them, other people appreciate them. My glory to use Paul's terminology, is that which makes me most proud to be me. That which other people see from the outside, I think that's my glory. That's what in the end is going to be that thing that defines me. I don't know whether you've ever played the, the obituary game. Um, it's probably not a very healthy thing, but if you ever read somebody else's obituary, that fleeting moment where you think, I wonder what they'd write about me. I wonder what would be most important about my life to others? What is my glory? What will count most importantly in my life? And actually, more to the point, when I look back on my life, what will I count most important? What will I look at in however many years I have and go, that's my glory? Paul was very clear. Paul was absolutely certain that his glory was going to be them and people like them. The people who had come to faith in Jesus, who had discovered the good news, who were living out and speaking out the good news because of him. That was his glory. That's what he'd look back on and go, I was involved in that. I did that. That was partly because of me. What's your glory? Joy is slightly different. If glory is about looking ahead to be able to look back, joy is about right now. Paul is saying, you, right now, and hearing the report from Timothy, we'll look at how this all happens in a moment, you bring me joy. Joy, that sense of well-being, that sense of pleasure, that sense of rightness, of wholeness. What brings you joy? might be all sorts of things that bring you joy. It might be... Uh, a perfect view, a perfect photo. It might be the, the gurgle of your little kid. It could be a, a, you know, your puppy. It could be a, a job well done. It could be a talk well delivered. I mean, there are all sorts of things that bring us joy. 
Paul says, the thing that brings me the most joy right now, here and now, the thing that drives me onwards, that gives me energy for tomorrow, he's hearing good report from you, that your faith is growing, is being nurtured, is strong. Now, the, the, the language that's in this passage that should sort of make us sit up and, and notice, in other words, the language that should make us see that we are getting this little window on Paul's soul is in verse 17 and 18. But brothers and sisters, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to come and see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. There is a passion, an intensity to those words that when you hear them in anybody, you sit up and take notice. When somebody speaks with that much passion about a person, about a project, about a place, when somebody speaks with that passion, you know you're hearing something from right down deep within. And in fact, the language in the, la- the, the words in the language that Paul originally wrote are even more passionate than we get in the slightly flat translation here. When he says, we were torn away, uh, the, the word that he writes literally means, um, or it was used in that, that, those times, to mean orphaned. And interestingly enough, in, in those days, that Greek word that means orphaned could be used of a parent as well as a child. A child would be orphaned when they lose their parents, but a parent would be described as orphaned, in this sense, when they lose a child. Paul is saying, I am missing you with such an intensity of feeling that I feel like I have been orphaned in terms of I'm a parent and I've lost my child. This isn't a sort of flat sort of, oh, I'm missing you a bit. This isn't simply somebody talking professionally about ministry or a job. This is somebody whose heart is utterly broken. This is somebody who feels ripped away from those whom he loved the most. I've been orphaned from you. Our intense longing made us want to come and see you. And then a lovely thing, in person, not in thought, which literally is written um, uh, in my face, but not in my heart. In other words, you can't see my face, and I can't see your face, but my heart is still with you. Can you hear the passion that's there? This is the engine room of Paul's life. This is the focus, the driving direction of Paul. All he wants is them. Could I ask why? Why is it that for Paul, the engine room of his life is these people? Why is it that for Paul, the direction of his life is about people like them? What can we learn from that passion? What might we hear for our own glory and joy? How might it shape the way we think of our own lives? What drives us from the inside? What gives us direction? Well, there's one really obvious thing, and perhaps it's the least controversial, and it's a very straightforward thing to say, which is, isn't it a useful corrective to us that Paul's great passion in life is people, not simply projects? It's personal, not just stuff. His great passion is for people and their transformation, not simply achieving stuff, and making a success of projects. It's not that Paul was uninterested in stuff or uninterested in projects, but he was only ever interested in them because of the people that he served. 
Actually, that's not a terribly controversial thing. I don't think you have to be a person of Christian faith to believe that. I suspect that all of us at our better moments know that whether it's in our working lives or whether it's in our personal lives, it is always people that are the most important. You might be building a fantastically successful business, but in your better moments, you know that the thing that you're going to be most proud of is the way that that business impacted people, the jobs it created the environment that it transforms, what it made possible for people. You might be looking at your own bank balance, but actually in your life as a whole, you know that the thing you're going to be most proud of, perhaps as a parent, is the way you've provided for your children, the way you've looked after your own parents. You might be pretty proud of uh, a qualification you've achieved. But again, you know, as you look back on your life as a whole, it's going to be the way that you've impacted people that will make the most difference. So in our better moments, we know that our glory and our joy is always likely, in our best sense, to be personal, people-shaped. It's not a bad corrective. It's not a bad thing to ask ourselves the question. In terms of my glory, the things that I'm most aiming to have achieved in my life, in terms of my joy, what gives me a driver inside, in what ways are they people-shaped? And in what ways could they be more people-shaped? Shaped. God has made us fundamentally personal beings. We're relational souls. We know that life is at its richest when they're full of people, when we impact people's lives. But there's something much bigger and much deeper here in Paul. And it has to do with this little phrase um, in verse 19. He says, What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. Here's the biggest thing of all for Paul's glory and joy. For him, his glory and joy is going to be defined by what he feels like when he stands in front of the one who made him and who loves him, Jesus. That's the most important thing for Paul. It's going to be what he feels like when he stands in front of the one who made him and loves him, Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, back to another letter of Paul's. I think it gives us a really useful uh, window on this little thing. It's uh, take you back to page 1146. We don't often do a paper chase in these sermons, but it's not a bad idea sometimes just to let Paul interpret Paul. Page 1146, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, this is a, a little bit of a letter to the Corinthians where Paul is basically saying, look, um, I've been engaged in this work um, of... Uh, bringing the good news of Jesus to different congregations, to different people. I've been um, sowing seeds. I've been watering seeds. I've been looking for growth. I've been looking for faith to come. Uh, You're all arguing amongst yourselves, but actually it's not down to me. This is God's work that I'm involved in. Um, Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 3 says, After all, what is Apollos? That was one of his rivals, as it were. What is Paul? Only servants through whom you come to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. There's the crucial word. Paul was convinced that he'd been given a task to do, a job to do. And then comes these incredible words that we often skip over. Verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how they build, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, and costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light, 
it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Now, we get very jumpy when we start talking flames. We're not talking any sort of conception here of of hell or limbo or any of those sorts of concepts. This is a metaphor for understanding this idea that there is a difference when we walk into the presence of Jesus at the end of our lives between those things that we have done and been in our lives that will last and those that won't. Those that we will carry through into the life of the world to come and those that we will leave behind. Now, I should have checked with Joe's beforehand that I was going to use this illustration, but I'm going to use it in this way. Anyway, um, Joe's and Miriam were away on holiday and um, on their way home just a couple of days ago um, because of the high winds, um, they uh, ended up not getting all the way home but ending up with a night in Germany somewhere. And um, they only discovered the next morning getting or next afternoon getting back on the plane to come here that the um, airline company, in order to try and make their fuel last as long as possible in these high winds, without telling any of the passengers, had jettisoned some of the luggage back where they'd come from um, in order to be able to fly them home. Actually, it failed. They still had to stop in Germany, and then they got home, and they still didn't have um, their luggage. Now, I mean, that gets you a bit of sympathy, so that's no bad thing in itself. But it did occur to me as I was sitting there, that's a beautiful and maybe less fiery illustration of exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians. The question is not, according to Paul, whether you, as a, as a, a friend of Jesus, as somebody who belongs to his family, the question is not whether you're going to get there to the destination, not whether you're going to land, not whether, if you like, whether you're saved. Your destination is certain. Your life of the world to come is secure in Christ. It's not whether you've been good or bad. It's not whether you've loved him enough or not. It's simply receiving his free gift of grace. The question is, what are you going to take with you? What baggage do you get to carry? And uh, the question is whether you'll land and it'll just be you, or whether there will be some gold and silver, to go back to Paul's way of talking about it, that will, if you like, have eternal significance. And it seems to me that's what unpacks what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians. Because what he's doing is he's looking ahead to the end of his life, to when he stands before Jesus as he returns, and he looks then back at his life and goes, what am I proud of? What lasts? What's gold and silver? What's gonna, what am I going to carry with me into the life of the world to come? Well, he says to the Thessalonians, it's you. This is what I'm proud of. This is my glory. This is my joy that actually I've done the task God gave me. I've done it with all my heart, with all my life. You're my glory. You're my joy. And it seems to me that again and again, what the Scriptures say to us is, be careful how you live, not because you're somehow trying to earn a place in the life of the world to come. Jesus does that for you. But because actually you want as much of your life that you're living now, if you like, to be carried with you of eternal significance into the life of the world to come. In other words, not just to be for a fleeting moment of pleasure now, but to make a difference into eternity. And what does that look like? Well, for Paul, it involved doing the task, to use his language, that he'd been given to the best of the ability God had given him in friendship with Jesus. I wonder what your task is right now. For some of us in this room, our core task, day-to-day work, 
is parenting. Well, it doesn't involve going and planting churches. It doesn't involve standing on a big stage. It doesn't involve writing letters that will be written 2,000 years later. But is it important? Well, of course it is. Can it have an impact into eternity? Well, of course it is. It's to do with people. It's to do with shaping life. It's to do with care and nurture and love. Well, if you're running a business, it doesn't sound very spiritual. You can't write a sort of gospel about it. You can't say, oh, I've converted half the world. But are you doing so with integrity? Are you doing so in such a way that you're making a difference to people's lives? Are you doing so in such a way that you make the world a better place? Are you doing so in such a way that you're living out and speaking out the good news of Jesus? If so, then your work has eternal significance. Whatever the task that God has given you as a friend, as someone who prays, as somebody who influences others, as somebody who simply works hard at what you do, having this eternal perspective of what is my glory, what is my joy, transforms the everyday into never just every day. Everything you do every day can have eternal significance, however insignificant you feel your life might be on a day-to-day basis. Living with integrity, being a person of compassion and love, giving yourself for the sake of others, speaking out the good news of Jesus when you have an opportunity, living out the good news of Jesus at every opportunity. That's the gold and the silver that even when tested by fire, to use that metaphor, will be carried through into the life of the world to come. You won't be left on a baggage carousel back where you came from. You get to carry it with you into what's to come. That's why Paul is so heartbroken, orphaned, to be without them. They, these people that he's preached to, that he's led to faith, they're his glory and his joy. And when Jesus appears, he knows that they are the people he is going to be most proud of. They're going to be his glory, even as they are them, his joy. What will be yours? What's your joy today? Is it people-shaped? Is it to do with the task that Jesus has given you to live? Does that bring you joy? And if not, could you ask him, even this week, to give you a joy that is rooted in the role, the task that God's given you? What are you aiming for? What's going to be your glory as you look back on your life? What are you going to be most proud of? And how could that be shaped by the life and death and resurrection and presence of Jesus in your life? In a few moments' time, we're going to come to communion. And as we share communion, what we're sharing together is that gift of life that is not meant to just be for those holy bits on Sundays, but is meant to send us out to live and work to his praise and glory in our day-to-day lives. I'm simply going to suggest that in a moment of quiet, we bring to God this week that's to come. We think about what brings us joy, we think about what gives us glory. And that as we come for communion in a few minutes' time, we come bringing our day-to-day lives and asking that our glory and joy might be in the task that God has given us to play.